Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Rebecca Carroll. Rebecca is a writer, cultural critic, creative consultant, editor-at-large, and podcaster. She is the author of multiple books, including her memoir, which came out in February and is titled Surviving the White Gaze. Today, we talk about her life as a Black child adopted into a white family, the ways centering whiteness can be harmful, and about her 2020 podcast, Come Through with Rebecca Carroll. We are still in the throes of our month-long fundraiser for Million Book Project. I'm asking the Stacks community to raise $50,000 for this organization that brings libraries into prisons to counteract what prison does to the human spirit. Click the link in the show notes to contribute what you can. And please note, Million Book Project is run through Yale Law School, and that is where you'll be redirected to make your donation. The Stacks book club pick for April is The Tradition by Jericho Brown. We will discuss this poetry collection in detail with Reginald Dwayne Betts on Wednesday, April 28th. I'd like to give a shout out to the newest members of the Stacks Pack over on Patreon. If you'd like to join these fine people, please head to patreon.com slash the stacks to earn inside access to this show, like our virtual book club and discounts on merch, and know that you're helping to make every single episode of this podcast possible. Thank you to Janelle Rucker, Anastasia Kim, Bree Shaw, Lee Siller, T. Sharice McCall, Caitlin Reeder, Anna McCauley, Blair Mann, Sharesta Garg, and Justin Crosby. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. Now it's time for my conversation with Rebecca Carroll. All right, everybody, I am so excited. I am here today with Rebecca Carroll, who is the author of many books, but her most recent book, which we're going to talk about today, is Surviving the White Gaze. Rebecca, welcome to the Stacks. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm just so excited to have you. We'll dive right in because I have a bazillion questions for you. So (laughs) in about 30 seconds or so, can you distill this book down for our readers? Oh, man. Uh, I know that's uh, hard. It's your life. So it's sort of rude (laughs) to ask, but do your best. (laughs) Well, I will will say that the book ends where it ends um, very specifically uh, because the last 17 years, uh, it's not about the last 17 years. But it, it's the last 17 years that allowed me to write what I've written, right? Mm. Okay, so it's it's a coming-of-age story that starts when I was a very, very small child, um, raised in a very sort of bucolic, uh, natural world of imagination and play in a family that was white, all white. And everything in my world, in my town, in my schools were all white. It was all white. Um, And so it's basically the sort of trajectory or narrative arc of my realization of what that meant uh, to have been raised in all whiteness, to discover that that is what is known as the white gaze, and to really struggle with sort of decentralizing that gaze and emerging as the Black woman I am today. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about the title first. I kind of want to get that out of the way, sort of, because I think that um, I'm curious how and why you picked the title for the book. 
And I'm curious as to how you see yourself in relationship to the white gaze now as an adult. Mm. So I did not, I had never heard of the term, the white gaze until I heard Toni Morrison say it. Mm. Um, and I've, I've told this anecdote before it's not in the book. Um, but I was a producer for the Charlie Rose show for a couple of years. And when she would, when she was a guest on the show while I was working, I, I remember standing in the control room and watching the, the interview. And she started talking about the, this thing called the white gaze. And I remember it was like, you know, one of those aha sort of mm. eureka moments. I was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's what I've been trying to understand, to escape, to undo, to get out from under. It's the white gaze. And so it's, it's the thing that tells you that every standard of beauty, of value, of intellect, uh, of curiosity, of objectivity is only acceptable in proximity to whiteness, right. in the context of whiteness. Now, it took me a long ass time to then, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I understood I had that moment of awakening, but the white gaze is very, very powerful, right? right. And so recognizing it was not the same as getting out from under it by any stretch of the imagination. Because that's the other thing about the white gaze is it will really, it will make you delude yourself into believing that it will somehow protect you right. or hmm. make you a better person, right? Right. Or make your work more valuable, right? Um, so it took a long time, but I knew that when... I sort of decided, you know, I had this conversation with my son after Mike Brown was shot when he said, you know, are we going to get shot? Um, and it was just a, another one of those moments where it was like, okay, now I'm ready. Right. right. <laughs> now I'm ready to dismantle the shit and put my, 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 my boot on the neck of white supremacy. Right. Okay. This, I, I want to ask you this question because it's something that I grapple with being, being mixed and being more on the fair side. And it's about sort of feeling a right to blackness or feeling um, worthy of blackness. Because at least Ooh. for me, and I can only speak obviously for myself, though, after reading your book, I think that there are some things that I really resonated with. And I think that we probably have some similar thinking about our experiences. But I feel like so often we talk about you know, the white gaze and how white people see, see black folks. And I'm curious about how you found your place because you are such a figure and supporter and champion of your blackness and of black people broadly, you know, this huge swath of diasporic people, um, especially in America. I think you, most of your work are sort of centered there, but I'm curious sort of how, how you embraced your blackness and how you're like feeling entitled to that part of you being raised without it for so long. I don't know if that makes sense. It sort makes perfect lot. sense. <laughs> it makes, it makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, I think as I, as I write about in the book, um, and as I believe, you know, sort of the ancestors kind of, um, dropped in people into my life, you know, okay. my dance teacher, my professor, um, my best friend, um, you know, the, the work I did at Blackside uh, Productions, the Eyes on the Prize producer, you know, I mean, there were mo these moments, my boyfriend in college, you know, like there were these people and these moments that came into my life to reaffirm mm. and to reassure because my, my sense of blackness, I, it was, it was extremely instinctive. I mean, mm. I wrote, an essay when I was six years old. Right. Right. <laughs> saying, calling myself a black child. Nobody had, nobody had said that. Right. To me. Um, so, I, but, but, but as also quite uh, clear in the memoir, I grappled with it back and forth because the white gaze will systematically tell you that bl the blackness is not the team. Mm. That's not the team. Right. We're the team. White folks are the team. We're the center. We're the default. 
stay on our team. I mean, and that's the real fucked up thing about it, right? I'm right. sorry. Is, is it okay to swear I, on this yes, podcast? Yes, All I do is swear. When people don't swear, I get annoyed. I'm like, okay, come on, right, say good. fuck, say fuck. Right? But that's the thing, right? Is that it's all, and I, you know, it's all like, if you are adjacent to whiteness, you'll be okay. Right. But in fact, it only makes you feel worse at the end of the day. Um, because, you know, you will get, um, nobody's going to look out. The white folks are not going to look out for you, actually. Right. You know, I mean, there's that scene in college. I don't know if this is a spoiler, but where my black girlfriend is like, girl, yeah, you think this white girl is ever going to be, da, 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 you know what I mean? Right. Like, and, and I was like, well, I, she, you know, because I still had that sense of being somehow ensconced mm. in this kind of protective fabric, this delusional protective fabric of whiteness. Yeah. So this is sort of a tangent, but I was on a walk with a, another one of my girlfriends who's also black and white mixed. And we were talking about um, our relationships with the white people in our lives. And I, like mm. you, am married to a white man. Um, and some of, you know, some of my closest, as white people love to say, some of my closest <laughs> friends are white, you know? And I wonder, yeah. like, writing this book and dealing with the things that you were dealing with and working through. And it's very clear in the writing of this book that you are working through these things, that these feel like kind of fluid thoughts that I'm sure if you rewrote this memoir in 10 years, you'd have different outlooks on some of the parts of your, of your life. And so we were talking about support groups for white, for black people who have close white, white, family and friends. And I'm wondering how you work through some of that stuff. Who do you turn to to have conversations about the white people in your life who aren't getting it or don't get it, whatever that it is in the moment? Do you know, and and I think that this is probably because I'm a bit older than you, I don't do that anymore, mm. right? So in writing this book, um, and, and, and just in the past six or seven years, um, I made a very clear break from white folks who could not come with me, hmm. who could not evolve properly, who needed uh, to be explained things, um, and and who who required an emotional labor from me that I didn't that I didn't want to do anymore. So, luckily, and again, I write about this in the book. Luckily, I met I married somebody who gets it already, like right. literally gets it uh, because he is thoroughly ensconced. You know, this is what he does. He's a sociology professor who writes about history and race and class and all of these things um, and who is fully on board raising our child as a black boy. Um, so I don't actually turn to anybody anymore. Uh, you know, if anything, it's it's more, um, you know, if something happens and I need like a black girlfriend you know like I find myself doing that more than mm. right like because I didn't have that right growing up and right. and and so you know we spend I mean we don't spend Thanksgiving anywhere now but <laughs> but we spend Thanksgivings with my girlfriend and her son in Philadelphia and her extended family and um so I'm very conscious of of it of having a lot of black folks in community um but but I, I don't worry anymore about the white folks in my life who don't get it. Mm. And, and that I think came through writing this book very much. Um, y you know, not least of all, perhaps most of all my, my adoptive family, right. I wrote this book thinking perhaps naively that I would be as truthful and compassionate as I could be as a way to, to, to let them know what my experience was like, wouldn't you be curious? <laughs> right? right, right. I was thinking they'd be so curious. And after all these years, here it is in this neatly packaged, cohesive narrative. Um, but it has not been received that way at all. Wow. And so since I never got that from them anyway, right. I have to give that up. I have to let that go. Do you think that you're thinking that it would be received one way and it not being received that way. Do you think that says more about you or more about them? What a great question. I think it says maybe equal parts about us both, right? Which is that they can't, they can't unthink the way they've been thinking right. for however many years. And I, as somebody who firmly believes in evolution, mm -hmm. um, 
certainly intellectual evolution. I can't imagine right. not wanting to grow your brain. Right. Yeah. Especially when it's about somebody who's in your family. Right. And in the landscape of America right now. Right. I want to talk about the landscape of America right now, but I'm going to save that for later because I want to talk about your podcast also. I think it, I listened to it after I finished the book and it really, it enhanced the book so much for me in a lot of ways. I felt like I learned about you. I got to see a lot. We'll talk about it later, but I, okay. Because <laughs> I want to give it, a, I want to give it a full like chunk of time. Okay. Um, okay. I want, so back to the book, <laughs> just, yep. on, I'm just thinking a million things right now. I'm like, doo -doo -doo -doo. Um, <laughs> I want to know. So when you write memoir, I don't write, but I'm assuming when you write memoir, there's a period of like, oh, I should write this memoir. And then there's a period of like, holy shit, I'm terrified. This is my nightmare. Oh my God, I can never write any of this down. Like you write five sentences and then you're like, I can never say this about my mom. I could never, you know, like there's all these things. And then eventually you figure out, okay, there is a way to do this and I'm going to do it because, and I know that you get to that point eventually because I'm holding your book right here. So I want to know how long it took you to write this book and what the difference was between deciding to write the book and actually figuring out how to tell your story. Yeah, that part. Um, so there were a couple of other times in my life that I thought I might try memoir writing. One was in my late twenties. Um, and I even wrote a proposal and it just was so wooden and so contrived. And I, I, I could feel myself forcing myself to write this story where it, it, I just wasn't ready. I also had to disabuse myself of the notion that I needed to be or sound like Toni Morrison <laughs> or Alice Walker, right. Or my Angelo with every sentence I wrote. Um, and then, uh, you know, probably 10 years ago, I thought, well, this maybe this is a good time. I was sort of in between work and I was thinking about I, and so instead I did, you know, I've collaged my whole life. Um, and so I did like this visual memoir and that was kind of an interesting process. Um, but so, again, when when Mike Brown was was murdered um, in Ferguson, um, that really cracked something open for me. And I ha I was a, a columnist at The Guardian um, at the time. And I just started sort of firing off these kind of mm. essays filled with rage and anger. And, you know, I couldn't, I, I knew as a mother, a black mother of a black child that, that, that I couldn't, um, I couldn't be so nonchalant mm. as the people who had been the, the models, the role models for me. Right. Um, parents, right. <laughs> parents. Right. Um, and so that's when I started feeling like these op-eds and essays and pieces that I was writing, um, was sort of practice for a memoir because I was mining different parts of, of my experiences and feeling the things that were the most powerful and spoke directly to my experience. So then, um, I worked exceedingly hard and long on a, on a, proposal with my amazing literary agent, Maria Massey. Um, and it was sort of rage filled and very, um, clear, you know, the, the, the publishers and editors that we brought it to likened it to Roxanne Gay's hunger. Like mm. we heard that every single time okay. and it was that kind of like direct director. So then when we got the, uh, we sold the proposal, <laughs> then I sat down and was like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea how to do this because it's not just journal entries. Right. It's not just, you know, um, piecing together memories. You have to, there's a real skill. It's a real craft to memoir writing. So I wrote a very, very shitty first draft. Um, and then I realized that what I would have to do is figure out the anecdotes and the experiences um, that spoke directly to this notion of surviving the white gaze. And it ended up being much more, much more narrative and much less polemic. I wasn't ever going to try to have it be polemic, but, but it, it just, you know, for example, I wanted to start with the scene of meeting my birth father because I wanted it to be for black folks. Like, mm. the, you know, I, when in fact it wouldn't have made sense to start there because he didn't come into my life until I, until I had, even like whispers of a sense of blackness. Right. Right. Um, and, and I really, I knew that I, when I, when I stumbled on the idea of starting with, with the Hill, you know, which was as every bit idyllic 
as it sounds, I, I as I hope that comes yeah. across. But I, I knew I had to start there because you had to see what the white gaze actually looks like right. when you make a very specific choice right. to live in a certain environment devoid of race. Right. And, and that's sort of, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot in this book and that I feel like since we've had, you know, this racial reckoning or whatever people call this past year since, since the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's and of course many others, but that mm-hmm. I think that impetus is this idea of like color blindness or, or, you know, not seeing color. And I think, you know, your family had that idea that they could remove your blackness from the world to treat you equally or so, or something. They had, they had an idea that they were seeing you as a person and not a black person and that that was somehow good or valuable. And and I'm wondering, because there's a, there's this line in the book where you talk about um, the myth of colorblindness being a cruelty. And, yeah. that, and, and I've never heard it described that way. Um, and I'm just, I wonder if you would just kind of expound on that for people, because since this is your idea. <laughs> because, because what it is saying is that I will only see you as valuable if I see you without something that is so integral to who you are Mm -hmm. and they're making that decision on my part on my behalf how dare you how dare you tell me that I am a better person a more appealing person uh, a more human person without my blackness right how dare you and I do think that that's cruel and and it's a trick and it's a distraction and it's a uh, a tool of white supremacy and and anything that sort of seeks to devalue blackness or, you know, the origin of my blackness and, and the richness of my blackness is, is cruel. Yeah. Do you, what do you think that your younger self would say to you now? (laughs) On on matters of what? I don't know. Just I like, mean, I, I had a like, lot to say when I was a little girl. Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like the way that I got to know you as a child and a young woman and a young person in this book versus what I know about you now and your career and since the end of the book, sort of, I just am wondering what little Rebecca would think of you or what you think she would think of you. I love that. Um, I think little, little Rebecca would be very much like, I really like your scarf. <laughs> <laughs> the fashionista. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, you know, like the middle school Rebecca would be really curious, but um, but a little bit ashamed mm-hmm. to be curious. I mean, that's how I felt about my, about my, my, my dance teacher, my ballet teacher. I was so drawn to her and then I felt badly about it in the same way with the break dancers. It's like, you know, this push and pull knowing that showing any kind of allegiance or appeal or, you know, solidarity or whatnot would make me less Mm. in the eyes of my white peers. Um, uh, High school. I mean, what a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, but I think, I think that, you know, not to compare myself to Angela Davis, but there is that scene in college when I when I saw her, we're sitting at this this bruncheon and just being like, she knows what she's doing. She's free. Mm-hmm. She's free. She's black. She's a woman. She's smart. She's intellectually free. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get there. And I think that I'm there. And I think that that my teen college age, Rebecca would recognize that in me today. That's so nice. That's so nice. That must feel nice to feel like you, you are living proof of what you maybe had imagined. Yeah. Well, I, yes. And I, and I maintain that this book is not just about surviving. It's about becoming, right? right. It's about becoming. Right. Speaking of little Rebecca, how did you pick which picture was going to go on the cover of the book? You know what? I put, I posted that um, on Instagram and my editor 
who follows me on Diamond and Schuster said, that's the cover. Oh, <laughs> and she, easy. So that's on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Christine Pride. All credit. All credit. I love that. And speaking yeah. of publishing, because, you know, we're talking about the white gaze and I think it would be disingenuous to not talk about whiteness in publishing because, you know, you're finding yourself again in a very, very white space. And I'm, and I, I'm pretty sure your editor is black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought so. Um, but I'm wondering sort of, I've, I've been going to a lot of your author events and you've had a mixed kind of group of people interviewing you and I've listened to you on podcasts and I'm wondering, you know, both interviews with white people and black people and other people of color. And so I'm wondering how you found discussing this book and discussing your experience into the world of literature and publishing and all of that. I have had a a very good experience, I will say. Um, And what I hope is that, and and I hope that this comes across in the folks that I have chosen to be in conversation with, is that there are many threads in this book um, to the point where I was was worried that it might be... um, you know, distracting or, you know, like digressive or, you know, or, or what as um, life is, is life is, but, but, (laughs) but so what I have assembled in terms of the, of the virtual tour and conversation partners is people who can, who can, um, find a thread that, that resonates. Mm. Um, and I think that Christine saw that, that there was a sort of a universality. Um, but there were also individual, uh, points, pressure points, you know, to, to, to connect to. Um, but I will say, uh, it's so wildly different than when I first published. I published my first book when I was 25 and, um, about black women writers, which, so it's sort of a full circle moment. Right. right. Um, but at the time it was the first, it was 1994, three and it was the first time that three black women ha- writers had been on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, you jump forward to today, it looks a lot different. Not not the actual acquiring editors and publishers and the, the, the sort of culture of publishing, but the writers and the voices that are, are, are being amplified mm-hmm. is a lot different. Um, I, you know, I had white editors uh, early on um, who would say things about, you know, some of these interviews that I did um, with black women that it was kind of depressing or she sounded too angry or, you know, this she's not really saying anything. She really is that. I don't think she sounds that smart, like young white editors saying this kind of thing to me, a young black writer. Of course. Um, and thinking like, you know, not having not really knowing how to navigate that. I mean, obviously, today, if a white editor said that to me, it would be a very different story. Right. 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 Um but I do feel in terms of publishing, just because uh, I've got so many, so many people in who are writing and, and publishing brilliant books and talking about our experiences. And it does feel like it's breaking open a little bit um, and that there that there has been a kind of, if not a whole changing um, of the guard, a kind of a willingness to um, to look at the canon differently. Mm. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be 
the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about your process as a writer. So one of my favorite questions that I always ask folks is how do you like to write? Where are you? What time of day is it? Um, how often are you writing? Do you listen to music? Very important. Do you have snacks or beverages? Kind of set the scene. So I'm not one of those writers who absolutely insists that I write for a certain amount of time uh, and uh, whether I have anything to say or not. Okay. Like the worst thing for me is to try to force something. Um, and, and I, you know, I learned that I think again, you know, when I was a columnist and I was writing columns twice monthly, like what if you don't have anything to say? Like it's really hard to right, be a regular right. columnist, opinion columnist, but that was great practice. Um, uh, but so the the seat the setup is I'm a runner and so generally get up and and read and um, go for a run and that's when stuff starts to coagulate. Okay. Um, and all I need is a sentence or a phrase or a, a, you know just a, a few a few words and then I can build on that. And if nothing comes during my run, then I don't write. Okay. I read okay. or. Um, or look at photographs or journal entries. I spend a lot of time going over journals. Um, you know, I have a hundred, hundred journals, you know? Wow. Um, so yeah. Um, snacks and beverages. Uh, I love a Twizzler. Ooh, I yes. do. I love a Twizzler. Um, and water, lots of water. Um, what was the other question? I, that that's it. Music. I'm, oh, oh music. no, no music. No music. No music. No music. Um, but also, I'm very good at writing amid chaos. You know, we okay. live in a small Brooklyn apartment, um, and I have a teenager. And there's, you know, the guy. Both my husband and son really love sports, and so there's. I write in the kitchen. Okay, that's my the kitchen table is my office. Um, and the TV is not too far. And so, you know, like depending upon whatever the season is, sometimes I'm writing through, you know, an NBA game or an NFL game or whatever it is. But again, if if I have if I know what I'm building on, then I'm I'm pretty focused. OK. And what about do you remember, aside from your journals, what what types of things you were reading while you were writing this book? If anything, it's extremely hard for me to read to read while I'm writing, especially similar genre books. Okay. Um. So I, before I got like really into it, when I was still writing the shitty first draft, I was right. I was rereading Hunger, Roxanne's work. Um. I reread Glass Castle by um, Jeanette. Yeah, we'll, we'll W. We'll get it, right? <laughs> we'll yes. put it in post. Don't worry. It's in the show notes. It's in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I read Educated. Okay. Um, and, and then I just felt like, what are you doing? This is not, you don't have to write it 
according to any particular template. Right. And so then I went and sort of reread The Bluest Eye, which had such a crazy impact on me. And despite having thought being presumptuous enough to think (laughs) earlier on in my writing career that I could in some way emulate Toni Morrison, in rereading The Bluest Eye, I realized that that The Bluest Eye is a coming-of-age story Mm -hmm. in a very devastating way. She didn't make it, but I did. Right. I did. And that was uh, a real moment for me to sort of be, I can tell this story like a story and have it have a narrative arc and have me survive at the end. Do you, well, I, okay, let's, let's talk about some of your other career careers. Um, I want to talk about the podcast uh, come through with Rebecca Carroll, which was last year, 2020. I'm like, when was it? It was last year, 2020, a very crucial year in America. I think it's part of your like intro tagline. Yeah. 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 Um, And it was on WNYC where you used to work and basically you interviewed all sorts of people talking about race in America. And what ended up being so interesting about the podcast, aside from as someone who, like I said, read the book first and then went through and listened to everything. So I got to, I sort of got to see what maybe what you were working through and how you were thinking through things that were connected to the book and hear it. Like, I was like, oh, okay. But what ended up being so interesting about this podcast is that it started before the summer and the events of the summer. And you were talking about the things that I think many Black people, myself included, have been talking about for a very long time. And I'm wondering sort of what that experience was like, how far in advance you recorded the episodes, sort of how it played out for you talking about race for so much of your life, right? And then Mm -hmm, all of a sudden, mm -hmm. people deciding that you're so of the moment, so timely, you know, like, oh, Rebecca Carroll, she talks about race. She's she's on the moment. So I'm wondering sort of what that was like for you as someone who's dedicated your whole life basically to this. Right. So, right. So let's first identify the people who are saying you're so of the moment, right? White people. (laughs) Um, And again, and, and, you know, attribute this to, to getting older and, wiser um and really having my fucks go the way of the wind you know (laughs) um (laughs) but i i just see it as an opportunity to further amplify and to further build and to further enhance um uh what i've been doing my whole life and so if the there's a crack in the window and i can push it open you know further open i'm gonna do that um and so long as people don't, so long as white people yeah. don't somehow make it seem like this is new, mm-hmm. um, which they do a lot, but to me directly, don't, don't do that. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I, I'm okay with taking advantage of an opportunity to, to build on the work that I've been doing. It's, is it frustrating at some time? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, right. notably in my interview with Robin D'Angelo, you might have picked up on on moments where I was like, um, okay, but yeah. I've been saying this for a right. real long time. Right. And your whole white fragility, you know, best selling book, a little annoying, but right. okay, let's talk about it. Right. Right. Um, so yeah. I mean, there there's an episode about the N word that I found Oof. to be particularly infuriating myself. Um And it's funny because you had Ira Madison on, who's one of my favorite podcasters, and he famously had an interview with Karamo Brown about the N-word on Keep It. And it was similarly frustrating, but very different tone and style, sort of. Yeah, (laughs) you know, Because Ira has a different vibe. Um, Yes, it does. I found what I found so great about the podcast is that. While I, I feel, I'm assuming with WNYC, there's an assumption that there will be a certain amount of white listeners. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. felt like the show does a really great job of not catering to that audience. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I felt like I could really negotiate some of the things that you all were talking about as a black woman without feeling like it was so rudimentary. And that's what I really appreciated about the podcast. Um, I'm wondering how how difficult that was to do if it was difficult if you had pushback at all sort of 
I, I guess I'm asking you how, how you keep it so real. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, so what's interesting about that, and I think really, really important to, to make clear, you know, is that oftentimes, um, and, and significantly in this sort of racial reckoning moment, it's like the folks who, who need to hear this the most are the white liberals who think right. that they know everything already, right? Yes. So WMYC is public media public radio. Public radio is a bastion of white liberalness. Right. So it wasn't that there was this kind of pushback of, you know, well, I don't think that you can say that, you know, it was much more like, could you maybe make that a little bit clearer? Right. <laughs> to which I would say, no, you're listening. If you don't understand something, there are myriad ways that you can learn. Like, that's the point of learning, isn't it? And that's right. the whole idea of, of, of who we are and how we evolve. And it's also what black folks have been doing our whole fucking lives. Right. 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 Reading something, seeing something, not understanding, and then sort of trying to figure out what does it mean? Right. And not just white things also. I, I Right. I think one of the things that I have realized in the last few months, but also yesterday I was reading something and th it was talking about the, this, in this specific moment, I was reading Marlon Peterson's new book called bird Uncaged, And he talks about the crown Heights riots. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know this piece of history. And, and I Googled it and it was a quick moment. And then, you know, I turned to my husband and I was like, do you know this? And then he was like, no, no, we do know this because remember the mayor didn't right. call the police. And I was like, oh my God, we do know this. But right. I think that there's this assumption that I think black people talk about a lot. Like I was forced to read the great Gatsby or I was forced to listen to, you know, Frank Sinatra or whatever. And so I was forced to learn about white things. But I think in addition to that, we also missed out on learning a bunch of our history and we had to be the ones to go and Google it ourselves. You know, so that is exactly the point. Right? right. Which, again, is about the white gaze. Right. Which is saying it's more important that you that you make sure you learn about these white things. Less important that you don't learn about these black things. I mean, it's 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 so clear. And yet when you think about it in those sort of succinct terms, right. it's sort of like, Wow. Right. And this is, you know, I, I think about this often with my parents and who are very good people, but who decided that it was OK to live in a town where potentially they will go from cradle to grave without seeing a black person. Right. For white people to to admit to that or to make that choice is fucked up. But for white people who have a black child <laughs> right. to make that choice is like, I mean, when you think about it. It's right. wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also that there is a justification process behind it. It's, it's like, oh, you know, and I think in your father's case, it had to do with being in the environment. But I think, you right. know, in some white people's case, it's school district or it's close to my job or whatever that looks like. And it's somehow convenient right. that it's close to your job, but also, you know, on the other side of your job, there's a bunch of black people, you know, like just as right. close. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I mean... So, so back to the podcast a little bit. The other thing is that the podcast is stacked with so many incredible guests. I mentioned <laughs> Ira Madison, Gabrielle Union's on the show. I want to know how you approach interviews. And this might be more of a really specific thing that I'm interested in as someone who interviews, but I have this opportunity to talk to a legend about interviewing. So I want to know what your approach is because you also talk in the book about how you fine-tuned your interviewing as you were writing your book. So I want to kind of know what what goes into your process uh, when you're mm -hmm. asking, when you're asking the questions. I, I love that you asked it. And I was also simultaneously thinking what a great interviewer you are. You're very, very fluid and very um, uh, buoyant. And, you know, I, I always just lead with curiosity, um, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's, I, I find it so um, tragic when people aren't curious yes. for about whatever it is, but, th but how else do we become? Um, how else do we evolve? You know, I often think we're not here to die. We're here to evolve, right? right? right. To grow and to become more interesting. And, and um, anyway, the question is, how do I approach interviewing? And it's basically curiosity. And then it's also 
um, conversational. And then it's also really just kind of geeking out about language. Mm. You know, like I love language um, and how we do it, as Toni Morrison would say. Um, yeah. And I think, too, um, I learned early on that I wasn't going to be like this kind of conventional um, activist or organizer or public speaker or but I but I had this idea that I wanted to create community and community with the tenets of blackness and language and conversation um, and culture and art. Um, and so it's just always been sort of a mix, like a like a mixed bag, like a collage yeah. of of uh, of all of the above. And in your books, not this one, obviously, um, and on the podcast, like I said, you're talking to sort of major figures in culture. Do you get nervous? No, no, you're I don't. not a nervy person. I'm not. a Well, no, but I, but I, when I say that I was not, I knew early on that I wasn't going to be um, like a sort of natural public speaker. Um, I mean maybe no spoilers, but <laughs> there was a, a, a scene, it, there's a scene in the book when I gave my first public speech um, and my birth mother was very critical of it. And it's not like I didn't know I sounded nervous, right? but, but that, but that she had was so openly critical about it and that it was about that I was articulating my blackness and my experience at the school. And so I just, I, I remember internalizing that her comments and her criticism but also like pushing back on it, thinking, well, I don't have to be like, I don't have to be this sort of smooth orator, mm, you know? Right. Um, but I can still be smart and I can still bring something. Um, and, and so, you know, I had to sort of figure that out, um, how, what that would look like. But I very quickly realized that, that if there was another person who I could engage with, that would bring out something that felt fluent. I love that. Yeah. My last question about the podcast, and this is sort of a big one. So mm. get ready. Okay. You're living like the rest of us through 2020. You're yeah. making this podcast about the year 2020. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know that there's going to be this racial reckoning. I'm assuming when you probably got the idea for the podcast, maybe you all didn't even really know that coronavirus, what it was or what oh, it was no. going to be or anything like that. So what in the end ends up being your big takeaway from 2020, from the series? <laughs> that is a big one. It's a big one. That is a big... <laughs> Wait, from you. 2020, from 2020, the year or 2020, the, the come through podcast. Um, I'll let you kind of make that your own answer. I'll let you decide what you feel like. Because I, I, I think, I'm assuming that a lot of what you talked about on the podcast was thing, were things that you were also grappling with, like most of us were grappling with because of the year. Like that they're connected in a way that maybe, like I don't think of the stacks necessarily as being a 2020 podcast, you know? <laughs> like I could talk right, about 2020 right. versus my conversations, but I feel like they're kind of together. So 2020 slash come through and slash or. So this is sort of a two-parter um, because on the one, on the one hand, um, I got to spend more time with my child mm. than I have since he was little, like really small. Like I got to watch him grow into his shoulders, mm -hmm. start dealing with his hair. He's obsessed with hair products. He twists it. He knows what he, he wants the lineup. He, he's very serious about that talking about hair products like I thought that I you know not having a girl like I wasn't gonna get to have that that cool uh relationship but it turns out we do um but but the point is is that I got to to watch him grow in real time mm. um and and also you know again our because our apartment's so small he got to watch me negotiate deals like mm. my book deal and the, the film, the, the TV adaptation deal and this other project that I'm working on um, about Billie Holiday. And he got to hear his dad talk about, you know, um, the history of school desegregation in New York City to his students. And and so there is a part of me that feels like 2020 for all of its death and and violence and 
political like outrage we here created something that was that was filled with growth mm. real growth um in spite of the kind of um atrophy that was going on outside in the world right then on the other hand i mean and then there's also feeling like my son is safe right because he's with right. with us and not going out into that treacherous um uh terrain for for young black men black boys especially um but but then i i guess i think it's so it's just such an outrageous just the whole four years with trump was right. just so outrageous um and and then also such a strange time to receive um to receive good energy and success mm -hmm. and achievement mm -hmm. you know this has been actually a very very good year for me creatively mm -hmm. speaking um but in terms of of race and the racial climate and racial reckoning it's so much a part of of what i do all the time um and my goal is for people to also have it be that for mm -hmm. people to be conversant mm -hmm. um so that we don't have to reflect on on 2020 like it was one long black history month right uh right, right. uh so i i'm i feel grateful to to have come out of 2020 with my health and my son and my husband's health and our immediate families. Um, and, and having produced something that I'm extremely proud of both in the podcast and the book. Um, and to just, uh, and just to be able to keep it pushing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is a, another very important question, less difficult, which is what is the word you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh, I love that. It's oh, <laughs> so good. Um, alioli. I don't even know that word. Alioli is like that nice little um, garlicky, creamy uh, oil that oh, you put on. Oh, I always pronounced it aioli. Oh, like to see, dip that's French why I spell fry? it wrong. I was going to say, that's I why feel I like spell it wrong because it's aioli, not alioli. Right? I was like, what's an alioli? And I always think, right? And I always think that it's a i l i o l i, but it's. A I also don't know how to spell aioli, but a i a o a i l o l i no idea and <laughs> truly and it came to mind because I'm I'm an obs obsessive spelling bee oh. New York Times person. My girlfriend Corinne and I check in pretty much every night on oh it. We almost all always get to genius. We've only gotten to Queen Bee twice. I will fail that. I don't even know what that is because I hate spelling so much that I oh. have to imagine that I would get zero. I mean, this question came out of the fact that I was like talking to all these great authors and then I was like, authors can't also just be perfect spellers. Some of them must suck at spelling like me. And so I just love to know because I think that we think because you're good with words, it means that you're a good speller, but that's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily <laughs> true. Also though, I mean, do not underestimate the use of a thesaurus. I mean- mm. I mean, yeah. not just for, just for spelling, because the dictionary can do that for you too. But just the sources are just delicious to me. I love them. Yeah, I I always liked the source. My dad used to carry around like one of those back in the nineties, one of the little like computer the source you could like type in the word. It was like no a dictionary way. and the source. Yeah, he was very. Oh into my it. god. Okay, I just have a few more questions for you. This mm -hmm. one's, I think, mm -hmm. again, another very important one, which is for folks who love your book, who read it, who love it. What are some other books you might recommend to them? Mm. I um I will always recommend Sula. Okay. So good. By Toni Morrison. Um I mean it, the question is does it is it related to or is it just what I think is great or great books? I think something that you think maybe is in conversation with some part of your book. So if they liked your book for for any reason that maybe you think is a companion piece to it. Nicole Chung's book. Yeah, that came to mind to me, is, obviously. It is absolutely all, all you can ever know. And we actually did a whole um, episode on that book in the earlier years of this podcast. And Nicole came on. That's, yeah. That's that's a beautiful book. Um, I think Hunger, Roxanne Gay's mm -hmm, book. There mm -hmm. is still a, a relationship there in conversation. Uh, that's all I got. That's, that's all great. I got those, are, those are great. And I think Sula is also very much in conversation with this book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm wondering... 
and I, you don't have to answer this if the answer is no, or if it makes you feel weird. So please know that. But <laughs> I'm wondering if you've gotten any pushback on this book. And if you have, if you, if you felt like any of it was, was worthy of your time. Cause so pushback much pushback from people personally or from, um, from readers. So where, where would I see that? I don't know. Or, where, do you, uh, Okay. Like so, sometimes authors get emails from readers or like they read a review from a reader and, and like, I'm just wondering, I sometimes ask this question of people and they're like, no, everyone loves my book. And then I sometimes ask this question of people and they don't love the question. And so that's why I kind of gave you the out, but I'm just curious if you've received anything about like back to you that you felt like was worthy of your time. Cause sometimes it's also just like, Hey, fuck you. Sorry. You didn't yeah, get it. You know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this, this, the stakes are a little high here. Yeah. So, um, so worthy though is, is tricky because the biggest pushback has come from who I'm sure you can imagine it has come from. Right. Um, people who are in the book. Uh, but there was a, a library journal review, um, that said it was too self-involved hmm. and that she grew tired of reading about my relationships with various, you know, my various relationships. Um, so, you know, I mean, my, my, I think that that's, that's valid in that it's a memoir, so right. it's going to be pretty self-involved. Um, but I hoped that it wasn't self-involved, right? Like that, sure. that she used that term was kind of a bummer. Um, but I also felt like the, the relationships are an integral part of the book because as my husband smartly pointed out, I was trying to find myself mm -hmm. in these relationships. Mm -hmm. And so then by the time, you know, I sort of got to that kind of like no fuck space where I met him, I knew kind of who I was and how I wanted to keep growing. Right. But those, I think those relationships that I included, and obviously there were more right. <laughs> that I could have, but right. um, were, were, I thought was, was, were, those are really important, I thought, to include. Yeah. And then sort of the flip of this question is I want to know how, if you've heard from people who, or, or I know you have, I'm sure you have. I feel like I've heard you say that you have. But the people that you've heard from who love the book and felt like the book spoke to you and sort of what that feels like to you as someone who put your life out for us to consume, like what that kind of feedback feels like. It feels bananas. Like it really, really does. Um, and it's also like, you know, it feels what I really, really wanted more than anything was for the writing to hold up to the story mm. because I know it's an interesting story. I've been talking about it and living it my whole life. Right. Right. Um, but I wanted to make sure that the writing resonated as much, even if not more than the actual story itself. Mm. Um, and so what I have found is that when people say I related to it, um, it's great. It feels great. But when people say, I love that it was how, it, how it was written, mm -hmm. it just about makes me want to faint. <laughs> it's, it's so delightful <laughs> to hear. Um, you know, and one, one reader, um, said to me, this is an early reader, um, who went on to blurb it. She said, I knew, I knew that you were going to survive by just the tone of your writing. Mm. Like that voice of strength and survival was all the way through. And that just, that, that's the stuff that, that really makes it, just makes me proud and makes me um, humbled and, uh, and delighted. I love that. I love that. Okay. Last one. Here it is. If okay. you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want that person to be? Easy. Tony Morrison. I knew you were going to say that, but I had to I know ask. because I, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a whole essay about it when, she, when she died, uh, for the Atlantic, I was writing, I was writing this book for her. I, mm. I wanted her to see that I survived and that the way that I learned that I could was because Piccola didn't. Right. I actually have one more question about Toni Morrison. Okay. <laughs> I, I know in the book you talked about when you worked with Charlie Rose and that you got to meet her briefly. Was that when she did that interview that is everywhere now with no, Charlie Rose? It's okay. not. It's I not sure. I always, no. I was very curious. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, everyone, this has been so great talking with Rebecca Carroll, author of Surviving the White Gaze. The book is out in the world now. You can get it wherever you get your books. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you so much for having me, Tracy. I loved it. And everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Rebecca for being my guest. Thank you also to Ann Tate Pierce and Chanice Bass for helping to coordinate this interview. Please consider making a donation to The Million Book Project through the link in the show notes. Help us hit our goal of $50,000 towards getting books into prisons nationwide. Our April book club pick is The Tradition by Jericho Brown. We will discuss this book with Reginald Dwayne Betts on Wednesday, April 28th. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.